Hello and welcome to this episode of Irreligiosophy, where we continue to be a beacon for Jehovah, at least until the second coming. Or third or fourth, depending on when he came invisibly. Isn't that right? Well, I'm just uh, waiting for the 144,000 to die off, and then maybe he'll stop coming. I heard that <laughs> some of those 144,000 may not have actually gotten their place in heaven, so mm -hmm. there's, it's still open. That's the change in doctrine. But we have a guest here today, isn't that correct? An actual former Jehovah's Witness to talk about this stuff. Yeah, and she's the one you heard it from, so great way to introduce Woo! her. What a segue! <laughs> <laughs> Well, for those of us, uh, or for those listeners out there, uh, we got an email from Tall Penguin, and she wanted to discuss, uh, well, mostly she was just discussing her experiences with Jehovah's Witnesses, and uh, we invited her to come on because there is absolutely no way Charlie or I could do Jehovah's Witnesses justice without eyewitness accounts. So welcome, Tall Penguin. Hey there. So, uh, seeing how Charlie isn't going to ask you anything... <laughs> I just welcomed her to the show! Well, you couldn't have asked her uh, how she's doing, uh, what what her background is, education, nothing. You're just going to say welcome and then sit there and put her on the spot? That's implied in the welcome. <laughs> how are you doing? What is your educational background? One question at a time, you're confusing her. <laughs> I'm doing really great. Um, my educational background, well, as a typical JW, I was steered away from quote-unquote higher education, so I managed to, later in my 20s, do an online Bachelor of Education degree, and uh, yeah, I'm uh, working with that right now, and uh, right now I'm a book slave. I work at a local large bookstore in my city, and uh, I try to educate people through their book choices. Excellent. Um, Rather fascinating. Uh, she actually made it onto PZ's site uh, specifically because of her job. Yeah, I read that article. It was um, a bunch of people went in and rearranged the religion category of her bookstore. Isn't that right? Yeah, a couple of uh, young university students had come in the store and uh, taken down the whole Bible section. So what they did was they recategorized all the Bibles, putting them in different sections such as sexuality and fantasy and sci-fi. Um, and I came over to the section mid-Saturday afternoon and did a little bit of a freak-out because there was four empty shelves and uh, I had no idea where all the Bibles had gone. Wait, wait, wait. You're trying to tell me that your bookstore up there had four shelves worth of Bible material? Best-selling book of all time, Leighton. That's, oh my yes, that's God. just Bibles. That's not commentaries. That's right. just... Holy Different shit. Different translations. You got the um, King James, New International, Revised yeah, Standard. Yeah, tons of different versions. So they took them all, and I guess uh, you first thought they were all stolen, right? <laughs> it's just I, empty. Well, I had no idea what was going on, because I was, I was thinking, well, how could they possibly have gotten out of the store with four shelves worth of Bibles? So I called my manager, and I asked if anybody was working on the section, and he said, um, no, what's going on? I said, well, all the Bibles are gone. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it has been known to be the most stolen book, which was kind of funny, but I didn't think anybody could <laughs> so many. I love that. Christian values. Let's go out and steal a Bible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You you need the book. Yeah. So, what happened? How did you figure it out? Well, 
we had an LP, a loss prevention guy, kind of touring the store, and uh, him and I started noticing the Bibles crammed into other sections, and over the course of the next hour, we did, went on a little scavenger hunt and, and found them placed uh, throughout. But as it turned out, um, what these two young men had done is once they cleared all the Bibles off the shelves, they had put a copy of Sam Harris's Letter to a Christian Nation on the shelf. <laughs> so they were making an atheist statement... Um, but by the time I'd gotten to the shelves, Sam Harris's book was gone as well, so I had no idea. So, <laughs> so pretty um, happy with their vandalism, so they took a picture and <laughs> sent it off to PZ Myers, and uh, PZ wrote about it the next day, and um, I happened to get a link from one of my readers and said, hey, you better go and see PZ's site, he's talking about what happened at your store. And then I ended up with 3,000 hits that day on my blog. Fantastic. On, on the one hand, I think that's really hilarious. On the other hand, it's kind of a pain in the ass on the other yeah. side of the story. I mean, but it made me laugh, though. It was pretty funny. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would promote that fully, but I would feel bad for the people who actually had to go as their job and right. clean up the mess. Well, it was funny because that one of the young university students who was one of the culprits, he came into the store a couple of weeks later to apologize, and uh, we've since gone out for beers and we've become good friends, so it's all good. <laughs> well, that was nice of him. I hope yes. he paid for your beers. Exactly. Oh, yeah, he did. Anybody out there who wants to meet a pretty woman, go mess with the Bible section, and then you'll go out for beers later. That's a great pickup line. <laughs> Is that the moral of this story? That's the moral of this story. Yeah, that's what Leighton gets out of it. Well, I have a small mild mind and a small penis. What can I say? Oh, God. So, should we call you TP? <laughs> Tall Penguin. You're a former former Jehovah's Witness. You you were brought up and believed in this whole thing, right? Lock, stock, and barrel. Yeah, my mother converted in when I was about five, so really it's it's all that I knew growing up. I, I don't have a lot of memories of the pre-JW world, even though I have pictures of celebrating Christmas and birthdays before she converted in. But yeah, it's it's all I knew. Well, yeah, how strange is... was that for you as a child, looking out at the, the, rest, of every, uh, the rest of the world, I guess, uh, in your part of the world, celebrating Christmas and these other celebrations, I mean, I, I I can't fathom it, truth be told. Well, I mean, you're a child, right? I mean, the mind of a five-year-old just goes along with what mom and dad have to say is, is real for you. So all of a sudden, I mean, yeah, everything changed. I don't really remember thinking anything strange. It was just this idea that all of a sudden I had this this godhead that I was supposed to be very, very aware of. And um, I remember around the age five of six starting to develop a very acute sense of guilt. Oh, sure. Jeez. And I suppose it would have been different had you had lots of fond memories, like if you were 15, of old Christmases or prior birthdays, but never really having known any different, I suppose it, it wouldn't have been that odd, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It was just, you know, it, it was the quote-unquote truth. You know, that's what it was uh, labeled, and that's how it was taught to me. Sure. So in addition to the um, no-celebrating holidays, they also have that strange doctrine about the blood transfusion that I never quite could get my mind around. Could you explain that for us? Oh, so the doctrine on, on blood transfusion has changed a lot over the years, and it's become incredibly legalistic and very, very murky and complicated now. 
because obviously with medical technology things have changed and they can now separate out blood fractions so it's not just a matter of having a whole blood transfusion which in the past was you know the big clear no-no for a Jehovah's Witness based on that scripture in Acts which uh, you gentlemen talked about in the last show but now um, Jehovah's Witnesses carry this medical directive so it's a it's a document that has all these variations of all the factors of blood and it says whether that individual will decide to take that in case of a med medical emergency but you gotta understand I mean you know the average Jehovah's Witness is a layperson they don't really understand all the, this medical uh, terminology and the implications so it's a strange thing to be carrying around this document. Like I see my parents, they carry around this little document on their keychain to direct medical personnel in case of emergency as to what they will and will not take as a Jehovah's Witness. It's complicated and it's crazy. Well, see, that's something that I didn't know. I didn't realize that Jehovah's Witnesses went around stating that you should not get a higher education. I mean, <laughs> I was flabbergasted when you said that earlier. Well, think about what a higher education means. I mean, if you send off young people off to university, they're going to learn some critical thinking skills, <laughs> and they're going to they're going to start to see through some of the doctrine and and what's being fed to them as truth. So. You know, it's the more isolated they keep the young people, the easier it is to keep them in line. Sure, and it's uh, um, the same basis for a lot of the religious um, homeschooling, because yeah. they don't want their kids out in Babylon learning any beliefs that are different from the ones their parents. That seems to me um, manifestly a sign of insecurity of your own beliefs. <laughs> If your beliefs can't withstand critical scrutiny, um, or if your beliefs can't withstand anything other than a closed loop, this sheltered environment, then I think that's a tacit admission, at least, that your beliefs are really screwy. Yeah, indeed. And there's a lot more homeschooling being done now in the Jehovah's Witness community. I've seen it crop up a lot in the last decade, and uh, it makes me shudder, because the last thing these, these children need is more exposure to people who are going to teach them JW doctrine. Right. Well, there's a question for you. Were you homeschooled? I was not. No, I was I was in a public school system. Well, coming from me when I was homeschooled, bravo on your parents for putting you in public system. Agreed. <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. You did something right there. Are you saying you, you regret your homeschooling experience, Leighton? Well, although I uh, was able to skip a grade due to my homeschooling experience, I did miss out on quite a bit of my middle school uh, years that, uh, that, well, I could have partied a lot harder, to say the least. Well, you had a whole other extra year to party, so that's a benefit. <laughs> I got out of I got out of high school a year early. How am I supposed to? Well, I did go to college and start partying there. And yeah, okay, never mind. Let's just continue. <laughs> <laughs> so, what other strange doctrines did the Jehovah's Witness have? I mean that that whole idea that uh, since it says in the Bible that you can't eat blood, therefore you can't stick it in a needle in your arm, <laughs> which makes absolutely no sense. bizarre to me, since you're bypassing the stomach entirely. Uh, but, you know, whatever. It's no crazier, I suppose, than anything else. Indeed. I mean, one of the other um, doctrinal flip-flops that's kind of happened over the years, which is odd, is around organ donations. Um, for many, many years, organ donations was considered uh, a conscience matter, so it was up to the individual Jehovah's Witness to decide whether it was okay to accept an organ donation or donate one to someone in need. And then they went through this period where they uh, declared it was cannibalism. 
<laughs> Their yeah. definition of eating is really strange. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, see, that's that's kind of funny that you bring up organ donation because uh, I remember when uh, when I turned sixteen, I went in with my mother to uh, to get my license, and they of course asked me if I wanted to be an organ donor, and I said yes. And when I talked to my mother about it, she actually brought up the resurrection and that I should seriously consider saying no to that because our bodies are meant to be complete for when the resurrection happens, which doesn't make any sense because what about the people who get burned up in fires, so on and so forth? Yeah, those yeah. poor people at um, Hiroshima and Nagasaki will just be floating in disembodied uh, <laughs> molecules, I guess. You know, if God, if your God is so weak that he cannot... And what about the people who died 6,000 years ago where not a trace of their fossils remain? Indeed. They have no organs. They weren't preserved. Their bones are gone. Uh, so if your God is so weak that he can't... <laughs> he can resurrect people from the dead, but he can't... Uh, and he can create the entire fucking universe. But he can't re... Uh, constitute your own body. That's just absolutely well, ridiculous. My question is, what about those people who get eaten by sharks, by lions, things like that? I mean, is it really their fault, or is it God saying, I don't like you and I don't want to resurrect you? <laughs> yeah. I am not going to go down and collect a bunch of shark shit. That's that, that is <laughs> past the line. But the crazy thing about this cannibalism thing is that, you know, there's a period of a few years where... It, the society, the organization overseeing the Jehovah's Witnesses said that, you know, if you accept an organ donation or if you donate an organ to someone else, you're going to be excommunicated. So these people lived in fear and they didn't get organ transplants and some of them died as a result of this uh, doctrine, only to have it reversed a few years later and they said, oh, well, you know what, we've kind of, you know, reanalyzed the uh, meaning of the scripture and we've decided it's a conscience matter again. So sorry if, you know, some of your friends and family died as a result of our stupidity, but that's just the way it is. You'll yeah. forgive me, but those people should be punished for that. I mean, this is willfully causing another to die all on a belief system. They should be held responsible. I agree. Yep. You, um, you often hear about, you know, oh, what's the harm of letting people believe in religion? Well, here's a place where it's actively harmful to, um, you know possibly thousands of people. Uh, Jehovah's Witness, what, 12 to 17 million members? Uh, how many of those, um, when this doctrine was going on, suffered uh, and died? How about, uh, you know, I, let me make a prediction that uh, this doctrine changed when one of the anointed was in need of an <laughs> organ transplant, <laughs> and then suddenly they get new light on the issue. Well, and this is what I realized in my research after, you know, I started to question some of these doctrines, is that a lot of the reasons that doctrinal changes happened were, as you mentioned, because the issue became personal, or it became political, or it became financial. That was the real reason. It wasn't that they yes. got some, you know, direct order from Jehovah himself that it was time to, you know, bring out the new light on this understanding. It was for very selfish reasons, and these are the reasons that the average JW does not know about. They're just blindly believing their leaders that they've got some direct connection to the divine, and that's how they live their lives. Very well, let's similar. rewind for a second here. Uh, what actually did make you start questioning? Is there a, a single instance, or it was just a bunch that led up to it? 
What had happened is one of my good friends who was in the same JW congregation with me, he had been perusing some online XJW sites, apostate websites, all the stuff we were never supposed to be looking at. And he had been doing this for a couple of years, unbeknownst to me. So one night we were out and he said to me, is there anything that you could find out about the truth that would make you believe that it's not the truth? And it gave me pause, and, and I don't know why, but it just struck me so succinctly, and I had to say yes. Maybe there was something I could find out, and I didn't know what that would be. I had no clue, but I had to admit that, yeah, maybe I could find something out about this belief system, and maybe it would make me question things. And so, slowly over a period of a couple of months, he started to share with me things that he had been researching. And um, then he uh, had ordered James Penton's book, uh, Apocalypse Delayed, which is one of the big um, authoritative works written by an XJW elder who is also a uh, historian here in Canada. He teaches at the University of Lethbridge, I believe, in Alberta. And Penton had done such a thorough history of the Jehovah's Witness movement and it was his research that had actually gotten him excommunicated because he'd found out <laughs> all the deep, dark secrets of the history. <laughs> that so doesn't the- sound familiar at all. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in the late 90s, the uh, Mormon church went through and excommunicated uh, uh, six of uh, their feminist uh, or and or intellectuals that had published stuff that, that was perceived as hurting the church, such as D. Michael Quinn who um, documented plural marriages uh, between the years of 1890 and 1904. That's between the first and second manifesto saying, hey, we're not going to do this anymore. So the church's response to that was, instead of, hey, thank you for enlightening us on our own history, they excommunicated the guy. (laughs) It sounded very familiar. Yeah, a lot of that was done. There was a great purge done in in the early 80s at the higher-ups of the Watchtower which you uh, talked about in your last podcast, and um, it's extraordinary that all these people who had been doing research legitimately came upon all these uh, skeletons in the closet. And um, it was amazing because when my friend had gotten a hold of this book, I was terrified. I wouldn't even go near the book because I still, in my mind, (laughs) thought, you know, this is an apostate work. I mean, you know, like... What's going to happen to me? Like, I, I was still under such fear. I mean, I was a 31-year-old woman, but I still believed that lightning bolts were going to come down and strike me if I even opened this book. <laughs> so it was insane. Like, I remember the day, like, he went off to work, and this book was sitting on the table, and I was just, I, I kind of, like, danced around it, you know. I kept myself busy because I was afraid to even be in the same room with it. But, um, you know, curiosity killed the cat, and uh, eventually I opened it, and and once I started reading, I couldn't put it down. I read it in a few days, and uh, I cried. I mean, I was so overwhelmed with emotion because I I just realized I had been lied to. You know, the, the JWs had whitewashed their whole history, and I felt so... Um, disappointed, you know, disappointed in my own parents, disappointed in all these people that I had looked up to my whole life, who I had believed wholeheartedly. And there it was on the printed page, this history that that I had never had access to, and it was completely overwhelming. What I find really interesting is, is Leighton, you had a similar experience where you felt like you were betrayed or lied to. Um, What I find really fascinating is how that switch flips. 
how uh, because someone else could read that who is your age, older, even younger, and they would say, well, this is just a um, book of lies, and I'm not going to believe any of this stuff. Um, he's just an apostate. So that that going from fervent belief to uh, wow, this this stuff is crazy. I don't believe this at all. I'm very fascinated how that switch happens. Well, the same thing happened with my brother because uh, right when that switch clicked on me, I was angry, um, just like Tall Penguin. I I was kind of hurt that my parents had never researched this themselves and that I had been raised in this. And I I remember my older brother coming to me and he wanted to talk about the reason why I had just completely disregarded everything I had been raised to believe and he specifically brought up the uh, papyrus, the Joseph Smith papyrus which was one of the the nails in the coffin for me and I, I remember sitting there thinking how is it possible that we can look on the same bit of information and I can accept this as complete bullshit, and my brother can whitewash it and say, you know what, this is just society's way of uh, endangering Mormonism and uh, putting it down. And you're absolutely right, that switch turning on is a fascinating thing where some people will switch it, others will just blindly ignore it. I wonder what the basis of that is, because I I guarantee you, um, my parents could have read any and can today read any anti-mormon book they want and they'll just chalk it up to being uh, anti-mormon or written by an apostate to get revenge of the church or they might even see it as evidence that it's true because this is satan's attempt to overturn it (laughs) so i wonder what the difference is um whether it's open-mindedness or whether you know you've invested what what is the majority of your life inside the church and you don't want to give that up I wonder what it is. Do, well, do, can been, you pin it down? I mean, what was it for you? How how did the scales drop or fall away? I I'm not sure. I mean, for for me, and this is this is my mother's doing. I mean, my mother was a searcher, looking for truth her whole life, and she'd been raised a Catholic, and she couldn't find the truth there, and then she switched the JWs, and you know, she always instilled in me, you know, to look for truth, but at the same time, she felt she'd found hers. Um, so, you know, when I started to question things, that that idea of, you know, wanting to know what was true, wanting to know what was accurate was, was really strong. So <laughs> her upbringing kind of backfired a little bit, but, uh, you know, I'm not really sure what makes the switch for some people and not others. I think you're right, Chuck, in that a lot of people who are older have just invested so much in their belief system being right, with it being true, that it's just too much of a loss to face. I mean, at the age of 31, for me, it was it was hard enough. Like, it's taken me the better part of the last four years to to come to terms with with how much time was lost. And, and you know, I, fe- I the first couple of years I was out, I just felt like I had to make up for lost time. But you can't. And that's a hard thing, I think, for most Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or fundamentalist um, believers of any faith. That you know, they've invested time, energy, money. You know, they've lost opportunities for education, for business, for, you know, leading an enlightened life. And that's a hard thing to accept. Well, I know exactly what makes this switch. Um, My mother told it to me one day when she came up to me and said, the only reason why I believed in the stuff I did is because I couldn't give up my sinning ways. Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 
Yeah, you're too attached to your sins. Um, it, it may be, it may be, that it. You hit the nail on the head when you said that uh, you placed more importance on the truth of the matter than any previous belief or dogma. Um, it does seem that a lot of people start out looking for the truth, and then they think they find it, and then they stop. And for the rest of their lives, well, that's it. That's the truth. And then since I know this is the truth, uh, nothing else can sway me, right? Yeah. So no amount of um, truth, <laughs> no <laughs> amount of facts from the truth. <laughs> can change my mind. But isn't that interesting that... The, the Jehovah's Witnesses, or, or to a certain extent the Mormons will too, they'll tell you not to search out these mysteries. Don't look into the past. Just kind of be content. When you die, all the answers will be given to you. Um, when, if they are true, if the Mormons are absolutely right and they have the one true church, the Jehovah's Witnesses, one true church, truth can't contradict other truth. So what are they well, afraid of? What do yeah. you mean, to an extent, the Mormons? Because I recall talking the Mormons to my are dad. more they're more open to uh, postgraduate education. Well, they're more open to postgraduate education. However, if you start researching some of the black marks in their history, as That's my father limits. has said to me, it will be made known unto you when you are ready to hear the truth. And they actually yeah. tell you to ignore it and not to study it. So, yeah, I mean, absolutely. no to extent, it's, it's black mark all the way across. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and it's interesting that um, my dad is an attorney. Uh, we were talking last night about strategies, right? And he said that if you have weaknesses in your case, you always want to be the person to put them forth so that you can shape them and mold them and, and put them in your own light, right? But the Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, they'd rather not hear it at all. And then when you hear it from someone else, it is a hundred times worse. That's where you feel betrayed. I was lied to. People told me my entire life lies. And then yeah. you think, this whole time they've been teaching about, you should be honest, and you should tell the truth, and they're lying <laughs> to you the whole time. Ridiculous. Yeah, and that's, and that's what's most disappointing about it. Um, you know, the, these were people that I had trusted my whole life. I mean, my whole community, everything. I mean, being a Jehovah's Witness, it's not just a matter of, you know, Sunday, you know, you go to church like another faith. I mean, being a Jehovah's Witness, it's all pervasive. It, it touches every part of your life and how you see the world and your place in it. And to come to terms with the fact that all of it's crap, <laughs> it's <laughs> oh, not yeah. an easy thing. Well, especially, uh, I mean, one of the big things for me was realizing that there is absolutely no way the church leaders can believe in the shit they're spouting because of what they're trying to hide and because of their actions. Was it the same for you? Yes, that that was really striking because um, as you found out in your research about the, the governing body or the higher-ups of, of the organization, like, I always thought that they, I don't know how, but they had said that they were appointed by Holy Spirit and... I don't know how that happened, you know, they get some kind of existential phone call from Jehovah to <laughs> let them know they've been chosen to rule the show, but, you know, I believe that these men at the top had, like, the most spiritual of attributes, and then when I started to research the history and found that, you know, most of the doctrines are decided on a, on a two-third vote, and they would often be split in their decisions, and it was more of a democratic political process rather than a spiritual one, I was flabbergasted, I was like, wow! I've put my life in these men's hands, and it's just a big boys' club at the top, you know, sitting around a table deciding how they're going to rule people's lives. I was disgusted. 
Well, you brought up actually in an email that, uh, I mean, when Charlie and I did the podcast, we were talking about the 144,000 and how uh, with the big anointed meal that these are the ones eating the unleavened bread. And uh, we we, uh, we brought up the fact that there should be more dead and instead there were a lot of still alive. And you actually pointed out that the reason why there were more now is because some of those 144,000 uh, kind of fell away. They they didn't become what they made their potential to be. Now, my thought that, that runs through my head is, so what happens as the years go by and pretty soon they've got 300,000 in the past, 500,000, does that mean nobody's worthy? They just keep falling <laughs> away? Well, and this is what's tricky when when you start tying doctrines to specific dates, like they said, you know, that ceiling of the 144,000 was 1935, and then you find that, you know, you you can't sustain this belief because time's moving on and these people are dying off. So they had to change the belief system and saying, well, you know, it's possible that some of these people who were originally anointed to go to heaven, um, you know, maybe sinned before they died or, you know, renounced the faith at some point and they would need to be replaced. So now there's a possibility that, you know, people in the religion, uh, even recently in the last 10 or 20 years, could say, hey, I'm anointed, I'm one of the replacements. Who's going <laughs> right, to argue? They're, they're exceptions, right? They're exceptions yeah. to the rule. And you get to the point where you have more exceptions than you have original anointed. So, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I gotta say that takes a lot of balls to step forward and say I am one of the anointed. That that's that's some heavy balls that they're clacking between their legs. It's fantastic. Well, and it's a strange doctrine because there's so much suspicion. Because I mean, you can't directly question on it uh, someone on it because it's like well, it's the Holy Spirit. You know, it's it's a personal yeah. thing. But I remember every every year at this memorial of Jesus' death, we would, you know, you'd be suspiciously watching if anyone was going to take the partake of the bread and the wine to signify that they were one of the anointed. You know, it brings an eyebrow because it, you know, it might be some forty-year-old person, you know, who's been a JW for five years, and you're going, "What the fuck? Like, how could they possibly?" I'd like to see a fifteen-year-old walk up there and do that. <laughs> Yeah, I want to really? go to one of those conferences and then just pig out on that stuff. <laughs> I'm, I, I think that's a goal. It, I must say. <laughs> <laughs> like, Leighton, you and I can just run to the table and beat everybody else out and just start chowing down. Until just we're chow out. down and make sure no one else gets some market <laughs> people as they come up. <laughs> <laughs> I think that would be great. Well, look, you sent us a copy of this uh, elder's manual. You pointed our attention to it. Um Fascinating document. Very similar, again, to the one that Leighton found about the priesthood and the Mormon stuff, uh, yeah. where it kind of gives you guidelines on justice. Yes. And well, uh, go ahead, Leighton. I was going to say, before we get into that, um, I actually discovered that uh, me and Tall Penguin shared a very similar experience. So uh, I, I thought it would be best if I brought mine forward first. Now, see, this was, I was probably about uh, 24, 25, and uh, a friend of mine who I had dated for like two weeks when I was 16, um, uh, we'd known each other since we were 12, she called me up and she was bawling on the phone because she was having huge marital issues, and she asked me to meet her so she could discuss things. So uh, we went up a canyon because that's where we grew up. She found comfort in the uh, in the loneliness of the canyon, and as the as the conversation progressed, um, she started crying again. So I grabbed her, started holding her, you know, trying to comfort her. And 
a few minutes after that process, she looks up at me and basically says that um, she has always carried a flame for me, that she didn't care what the consequences were, that she wanted me right then and there, and of course, you know, did her best to seduce me, but... I may be a misogynistic bastard, but I'm not stupid. I realize that uh, this would really harm our friendship because she was vulnerable and she would feel guilty for it for the rest of her life. So I kept putting her off, putting her off. Let me, let and, me bust in and tell you what really happened. Uh, I was the one trying to seduce her. You, you, <laughs> you agreed to have sex with her, but neither of you could find your penis. Yeah, that was the stopping point. She unbit my pants, and there was nothing but fur there and nothing else. You were just physically unable to uh, tie that knot. Well, uh, she was physically unable. I was doing my best to penetrate. But, uh... So you said no. You did not tap that. You didn't no, take advantage. I, I did not tap that ass. And, God, uh, I find that fact... hard to believe. <laughs> <laughs> Just because I do my best to tap things uh, doesn't mean I have to take advantage. But, uh, but no, no. Actually, the next day she actually thanked me for uh, for not taking advantage of her. But she still carried this guilt inside of her that she had actually wanted to commit adultery, and so she went and she admitted it to her bishop, and uh, the bishop came back. And uh, got very angry with her, berating her, saying that although she did not commit adultery, that she had committed it because that was her intention, forced her to tell her husband. Um, she had to go before a council. She was disfellowshipped for a while. And my bishop actually called me in at the time and sat there saying, is there anything you'd like uh, to get off your chest? And, of course, I'm sitting there thinking, shit, what does he know that I've done? <laughs> so What's I, he I got him, on me? Yeah, yeah, well, um, considering the shit I normally get into, uh, I, I just kind of said, well, if there's something you think I should confess, why don't you tell me? And right, he that's such a it's like a police officer pulling you over and saying, do you know why I pulled you over? Oh, yeah, I, it was the five felonies I committed. Yeah, I ran over an old woman on the crosswalk and tried to get yeah. away with it. Maybe it's the cocaine in my trunk. Come on. You, <laughs> you never yeah, take really that bait. they think I'm going to answer that? <laughs> <laughs> well, so anyway, so, uh, so basically he started uh, trying to get out of me that we had actually had sex and uh, berating me for allowing us to get into that situation in the first place. I got angry and basically told him where he could shove it because we had been friends and I would continue to have whatever relationship with her I wanted. I stormed out of there and, uh, well, she went through the repentance process. In fact, uh, she felt horrible about the entire experience and uh, for years continued to believe that she was nothing but an, an adulterer and her husband actually uh, would treat her as such when they would get into fights. Um, he would always bring up uh, these certain experiences, throw them in her face. Well, about uh, about well, four Layton, years ago. What's the definition uh, listed by Jesus Christ, she is an adulteress. If you, wow. if you think these thoughts in your head, like Jesus is more interested in your thoughts, uh, and he's interested in convicting you of thought crimes, which is essentially what happened. Mm -hmm. She was considering it, and uh, she wanted to do it. It doesn't matter if she actually did it. So apparently... If same thing, if you're angry at someone, you're a murderer. <laughs> you should be locked up for the rest of your life just for being angry at someone. I mean, this total yeah. bullshit. 
but it yeah. demonstrates that uh, people only these people only have power when you give them power. Indeed. Yeah. It's totally artificial. Yeah. All right. And, anyway, continue. And- that was the one thing she never got across. In fact, uh, what I was going to say is four years ago, she went into the bishop and uh, her husband dragged her in there, still angry over the whole adulterous thing. And uh, with the husband and the bishop, they convinced her that she had to break off any friendship with me, even though she had given up that flame years ago. Uh, And, uh, yeah, so I mean, just... What a nice segue into the shunning doctrine of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Well, we're actually not going to talk about the shunning first. Uh, Tall Penguin <laughs> had a, a very similar experience, and, and I really wanted to get her perspective on all of this. Yeah, it is a very similar experience, except for I, I was the woman uh, in that situation. Um, at the age of 24, I found myself married to a man. I'd been married since the age of 19, as is very typical with the JWs. You get married young because you can't have sex unless you're married and you know you're a horny teenager so what else are you gonna do you marry the first person that comes along so at the age of 24 um, I found myself in a completely dead marriage in in all senses of the word and I had fallen in love with uh, another man and the only difference was he wasn't a believer he was a quote-unquote worldly person he was a non-believer that's even worse (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it is worse, yes. As far as the elders were concerned, it's much worse. Yeah. So I ended up in a in a very similar situation, and uh, I engaged in what the witnesses term heavy petting, quote-unquote. <laughs> we got that too. <laughs> I, know, I love heavy petting. <laughs> so, you know, not even intercourse. Like, I didn't even have sex with this man, but I had had heavy petting. And, um, you know... Very similar to you, Leighton. This this man was very upstanding and very respectful, and he didn't know much about my religion, but he knew if you know if we went much further that it was probably going to destroy me mentally and emotionally, you know, because I'd be racked with guilt. Now so, I'm going to stop you right there. You shouldn't be tarnishing my reputation by saying I'm upstanding. Take that back. <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll try not to do that again, Leighton. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, that, that shows much better respect for me. <laughs> So, you know, this young man, he he wouldn't, you know, he wouldn't uh, have sex with me, and all we did was that, and so I left that night, and I felt, you know, very guilty that I'd done this thing, so stupid me, good little JW girl, I went and confessed to my husband, and then I said, you know, I'm going to have to go and confess to the elders, and so that's what I did. And uh, I found myself um, in a closed-door interrogation process, which uh, the JWs call a judicial committee. So this is arranged when there's an infraction against some of the doctrine, and uh, three elders are appointed to deal with the matter, and they're basically the lawyers, the judge, and the jury. Um, It's a closed-door thing, so... Here I am, I'm a 24-year-old woman, you know, incredibly sexually inexperienced, to say the least, and I'm in this locked room with my husband, my current husband, who's as smug as anything, you know, looking upon me as this adulteress, and these three elders. So I'm in a room with three men. Your husband was part of the judicial committee? He was there as an observer. Oh, Oh, my God. God. As he was the one who had been sinned against. Oh, God. Doesn't seem right. No, so for the next six hours, I all of my sexuality was interrogated, and, you know, there was all these questions about this very brief encounter with this other man, you know, where Holy were his... shit, six hours? Six hours, yes. Oh, God. Yeah. 
So uh, it's and how old are these guys? Well, I mean, they range anywhere. I mean, an elder, you know, anywhere from 30 to 80, you know, like a wide range of ages. Uh, these guys were all around, like, 40, 50. Um, but there's one who's always appointed as the overseer of the Judicial Committee, and he basically runs the roost. And as my luck would have it, this particular elder was also a member of the Canadian headquarters so he thought he was all that and took particular interest in the details of, of my sexual experience. And Talk about horny people. Six hours. You think, oh, thank God, we've got a 24, 25-year-old woman. Now we can spend the next six hours grilling her over her sexual practices. Now, now, what questions is, were they asking? How can you ask questions about sex for six hours? What, what were well, they asking you? They were asking me, you know, where were her, his hands, where were your hands, um... The the most insidious question I got asked during during that six hours was, "Did you climax?" Oh, and that, <laughs> I mean, really, like the 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 top elder who was asking me that, like the look on his face, like I felt like I was being raped because it was so violating. Like it it almost looked like he was getting off on this information. Like I'm sure he was taking it home and masturbating to it later. Like it was I just I guarantee you. Oh, yeah, I guarantee you. That's why it lasted 6 hours. This thing could have lasted 20 minutes, right? Yeah. Except for these guys are are uh, this is their version of pornography. God. Oh, indeed, indeed. And it, and it wasn't just the sexual questions, it was dissecting my marriage and you know the implication that they were trying to get me to confess to was that I had set all this up wantonly to get out of my marriage, which wasn't the case at all. I had, you know, I just fallen into this situation where I'd fallen in love with this man who was the closest thing to unconditional love I'd experienced to that point. And they they wanted me to confess to setting this all up just to get out of my marriage. And I wouldn't confess to that because it wasn't true. So they were just continually browbeating me, trying to make a confession. And I, you know, and then they wanted me to go back with my husband. And I was, at that point, I was like, this is a done deal. I'm not going back to, with this man. I, I was fiery. I basically said, you know, I'd rather die than go back to living with this man. Like, I, I'm sick. <laughs> oh, yeah. You think he was hard to live with before. <laughs> well, exactly. Yeah. Right? Exactly. Not a like chance. experience. Like, you know, I didn't want to go back and be married and be browbeat by my husband for the next decade over sure, one and, sexual infraction. Like, forget that. And, and they're making it a whole lot worse by allowing him to be privy to all of these details. Oh, yeah, for, indeed. Oh, indeed. I mean, Sat there I, so smugly. Oh, God. Oh, God. But the yeah. worst thing as well is, you know, when I said I'd rather be dead than go back to living with my husband was... The, the top dog elder looked at me and he said, you know, if we were in ancient Israel, he said, you would be stoned for what you've done. And he said, your husband here would get to cast the first stone. Well, <laughs> the, the real question is, why would God ever do that? Not that, think, you know, oh, you know, if we were back then, this is what would happen. That's, that's wrong. That is an immoral action. Well, and not only um, that, but God does not husband. change. Cast God does not stone. change, so why aren't they doing it now? Well, he's right. He's right in that <laughs> they did. Um, and your question is equally valid. Why don't they still? And the the answer to to that is to both questions. Morals of the time. It's not God at all. It's just that this is what this Bronze Age tribal uh, group used to intimidate everyone in their tribe. 
And uh, that's fallen out of favor. Not that God changed his mind or replaced it with a more merciful, loving Jesus. Uh, it's just the morals of the time. And like, Jesus, and it's part of that whole process of the scales falling away and you taking off your glasses to realize that. Because before, yeah. I just thought, wow, you know, the, these Israelites must have been really <laughs> wicked to have this <laughs> stuff put in place to keep them in line. Uh, well, um, actually, uh, Tall Penguin sent across a, a book, a uh, Kingdom Ministry School textbook, and uh, it's got one interesting pas passage in here concerning the council. It says, Take the initiative to help anyone in the congregation who has taken some false steps. Do your best to readjust him. So, Tall Penguin, you're standing there stating that you're not going to go back with your husband. Uh, they've been grilling you for six hours. What was their way of readjusting you? <laughs> um, basically, they just started reading me scriptures and uh, <laughs> pinpointing every single way I was a sinner. And I can I imagine I would have turned me. over and forgiven everything if they read me scriptures, too. Yeah. It seems pretty effective. Yes. Good yeah. Lord. So did you get a divorce pretty quickly after that? <laughs> well, actually, um, yeah, I was divorced within six months, but as a result of this judicial committee, I was deemed, quote-unquote, unrepentant, so I was excommunicated. <laughs> you were excommunicated. I was, yes. I was excommunicated at that point, and it usually takes most people about a year of, you know, repentance to get back in. It took me a year and a half because these particular elders... Um, really had a bone to pick with me, and uh, they thought I was an evil adulteress and really did not want to let me back in. Um, and I fought for a year and a half because, crazy me, I still believed it was the truth. Well, how did you your family like, react to your excommunication? You sound like a really scrappy 25-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's why she's called Tall Penguin. That's I it. love it. I love it. <laughs> she might actually be a penguin. We don't know. She can... We've had cats listen to the show. That's true. <laughs> hey, we can now uh, add another award uh, listened to by more penguins than other <laughs> any other podcast. Penguins Choice Award. <laughs> so how did your family react to it? You know what? It was strange. I mean, my parents, well, what had happened is because here I was, you know, I was now leaving my husband, so I had to move back in with my family. So my brother really never went along with the JW thing at all, so he was cool. But my parents were still Jehovah's Witnesses in good standing. And, um, you know, my mother has always been pretty hardcore, but, I mean, she took me back in. And, and the protocol is if you have somebody who's disfellowship living with you, you know, you carry on civil family, you know, uh, conversations, but there's no, there's not supposed to be any uh, spiritual discussions. So, you know, I was not allowed to talk to them really about, um, you know, the belief systems anymore. And I was, I uh, had to attend all the meetings, you know, I would go and sit at the back of the room so I would make anyone uncomfortable with my presence. Um, and I did, <laughs> yeah, I did that so for conducive. So conducive yeah. to coming back into the fold. That's the way to bring somebody back in. <laughs> It's similar in Mormons because if you are excommunicated or disfellowshipped, you can't take the sacrament, right? So it's announcing to pretty much everybody that you've sinned. Well, yes. it's slightly different in that in in the Jehovah's Witnesses, you're not allowed to talk about doctrine. In Mormonism, they jam it down your throat as quickly and fastly as they can. Yeah, that's true. 
Now, uh, the one thing I, I wanted to go back on is uh, what, what they got you on was concerning sexual misconduct, which includes adultery, fornication, and other forms of pornea. And I actually had to research further in the book to find out what por pornea is. And it basically involves immoral use of the genitals or at least one human, whether in a natural or perverted way, and there must have been <laughs> another party to the immoral... How do you do a natural or perverted way? <laughs> it... it um, I think it's hilarious their attempt at legalese at this stuff, right? Yes. And it must involve at least one human, so two dogs getting it on, that's not pornea. <laughs> no. Well, <laughs> but well my a favorite dog and part, a human. Yeah, my favorite part about this is uh, one of the very last sections where it says, also included are sexual abuse of children, including practices involving a catamite, a boy kept for purposes of sexual perversion. Is this rampant in the JW community, or community where you just keep a boy around for sexual perversion? Yeah, not so much. <laughs> it's an odd they thing. have a term for it, catamite. I've never catamite. heard that before. Yeah, yeah oh. they, they refer to Deuteronomy on that one. Yes. It's a Jewish, it's a Jewish thing. Uh, I love the. Um, there's a difference between loose conduct and sexual misconduct. Yes. So uh, loose conduct is a shocking, flagrant disregard for Jehovah's moral standards. <laughs> <laughs> so if they're not shocked by it, then I guess it's not loose conduct. Yeah. However, um, self abuse or masturbation is not pornea. So you basically just have to ask for forgiveness every time you do it. So I'll be in the office about every three hours. <laughs> yeah. Well, they they go on to say loose conduct may include the willful practice of heavy petting or fondling of the breasts. Yeah. Um, uh, and it's interesting that it, that it's purely female on that loose conduct stuff. You can commit it as a as a male, but apparently, a fe what's loose conduct for a female? Well, and not only that, but are you not fondling allowed your to own breasts? The... I suppose. Well, are you not allowed to fondle the breasts when you're married to the woman? I mean, <laughs> what is this? <laughs> yeah. Well, and this is where they, you know, they really jump into the bedroom, even with with marriage, and and it just makes sexuality just so guilt-ridden. Yeah. Are you serious? So even when you're married, you're not allowed to fondle the woman's breasts. Yeah, you can fondle breasts. But, I mean, there's, there's all these admonitions around oral sex and anal sex and whether that's okay for a Christian. And, you know, they're, they're constantly flip-flopping on their doctrine and they're, they're saying that, you know, they don't want to uh, go against anyone's individual con uh, conscience, but, you know, we wouldn't want to stumble anyone with our conduct. Yeah, they, they list a bunch of things right here. It's pornea involves oral and anal sex or mutual masturbation between persons not married to each other, homosexuality, lesbianism, fornication, adultery, incest, and bestiality. Well, I can tell you I don't know many women who would be against oral sex because that's the best way to raise them up. Well, indeed, and uh, it's very rare that in a JW marriage you will experience oral sex. <laughs> There's lots of hated JW women out there, let me tell you. What do you mean just women, Leighton? Apparently oral sex is very unpleasant for the male. Well, I'm, I'm not going to state that. It's just a man just has to be in the room with a woman to climax. A woman takes <laughs> a little bit of time. <laughs> so is oral... And anal sex and mutual masturbation between persons that are married to each other, okay? Um, it's one of those things that you just don't talk about. 
Gotcha. You can't you can't be hauled before a court. Uh, technically not. It's it's one of those things though that if if other people start to find out that you're doing things in your marriage that could possibly be stumbling to them, you know, stumbling to their personal faith and conscience, yeah, gotcha. the elders might have some words with you. Hmm. So, so I just better don't get rid of better get rid of my catamite then is what you're saying. <laughs> Indeed, yes. <laughs> Somebody might find well, out about that. Wait, wait, wait. You're you're using your catamite as a slave child to work on irreligiosity, so I think we can go either way with that. All right, but it uh, looks like uh, bestiality is definitely pornea, so you got a lot of repenting to do, Leighton. Well, I don't think so, because I genuinely love my cats, so I, I don't believe there's any repentance involved. Well, also, if you've married your cats, it's okay within the bounds of matrimony. But is marriage to cats legal in Utah? doesn't matter if it's legal to Utah. It's only if the Jehovah's Witnesses will recognize it. <laughs> now, tall penguin, would they recognize the love affair I have with my cats? I'm sorry, Leighton. I don't think they would. <laughs> Maybe one cat, Leighton. You'd have to be secretive about your other one. Well, what if I became Mormon again? Could I marry both cats? Yes, if both. they're female. The problem is, is they're both male. <laughs> That's a serious problem. Well, the, the funny thing about bestiality and, and JW is an odd bit of uh, historical trivia there is long ago, before they got a very uh, technical, difficult of por uh, definition of pornea, um, pornea was only defined as having sex with someone outside of your marriage. Uh, someone of the opposite sex. So if you were having sex with a same-sex partner or an animal, there was nothing much they were going to do about that. I've really got to invent that time machine. So, during the time you were on your farm, Leighton... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me and those goats, we had ourselves some orgies. You might not have to repent for that. Yeah. <laughs> The crazy thing was, pornea was the only ground somebody had for divorce. So, if you were a woman at this time in history of the JWs, married to a man who was, you know, having his uh, fun with the farm life, you couldn't get a divorce. <laughs> so, you're saying now, today, I can use pornea to divorce my first wife, which is a goat? Yes. yes. Excellent. But not at the time <laughs> you were engaging in relations. <laughs> Well, all right. Well, well, let's continue the discussion now. Uh, we we've kind of discussed how how you fell away, um, and what what was the reaction with the JW community? How did you approach it? How did you come out and say, you know what, I don't believe in this shit anymore? And what was the reaction? Well, after my last fun experience with the judicial committee, there was no way I was going to go through that again, and uh, you know. When you go through a judicial committee for apostasy, it's, it's definitely not much more fun. So I said, screw that. I uh, did what's called disassociation. So I basically disfellowship myself by writing a formal letter to my congregation saying I no longer wanted to be identified as one of Jehovah's Witnesses. And at that point, the elders read... Uh, they just basically make an announcement to the congregation locally and say, tall penguins, no longer one of Jehovah's Witnesses, and from that moment you get shunned. Um, and my mother did not take it very well. Um, I tried to share with her a bit of the research that I had found out, you know, particularly the 1975 stuff and, 
you know, she she said it wasn't true, you know, it was just a few people thought that and it got carried away and I said, no, you know, they had said this in the actual Watchtower magazine. She's like, no, no, it isn't true. And so I knew that conversation was going to go nowhere but alienate us further. So, um, you know, things were really difficult with my parents for the first year. I didn't have a lot of communication, which was very strange for me because I was very close to my parents. Um, and, uh, you know, they, to their credit, I mean, they are supposed to shun me 100% because I no longer live with them, so there's no technical reason for them to have communication with me. Um, but they've actually been pretty liberal. Um, you know, we're now at the point now where we, we talk pretty frequently, we'll go for dinner, you know, we'll hang out as a family and watch movies. So it's definitely to their credit that they haven't taken the hard line with the shunning doctrine. But everyone else in my life, like my best friend who I had known for, you know, 30 years and who I had been at the birth of her last child, wrote me a very angry letter. Who was I to question the governing body and who was I to think for myself and so on and so forth? And uh, she hasn't spoken to me in the last four years. You'll forgive me for saying so, but that seems to me a good thing. Because if someone is so petty... To cut you off as a friend, then how much of a friend were they before that? What well, it, I just despise that type of friendship. Yes, I, I agree. Um, for for me, the biggest loss has really been uh, the children. You know, like I, I was always the person in the congregation who looked after the young kids and who really saw them and would take them out and do fun things with them. So the hardest part for me is is not being able to watch these children grow up and not being there for them. So my my deepest hope is that they will remember me and come find me one day. Hmm. Yeah, they're, um, <laughs> your friend is actually doing what she thinks is right based upon the doctrine. And again, we come into the what harm does it do, right? Um, but she's actually following the doctrine as written because if you continue to fellowship with these people, your own salvation is in danger. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a self-protective thing. And I mean, you know, in all fairness, when I was a devout JW, I would have practiced shunning as well. So I, I understand people are just doing what they feel God is asking them to do it's interesting again that their morals are derived from doctrines rather than what they think is right yes <laughs> yeah. they know. well they've been taught what to think not how to think sure um, it seems to me you should have this sort of Mormons will call it the light of Christ but you'll have the uh, this sort of innate sense of morality within you and shunning a good friend or um, a family member, which is what these guys are telling you to do, would seem, at the face of it, to be immoral or wrong. Yeah, I, I just can't fathom shunning a child, shunning your daughter, shunning your son. That seems to be the, the most immoral thing that you could possibly do. It, it doesn't make any sense. And But you haven't grown up in this culture. Fundamentalist Mormons will do the same thing. Uh, the you know, you know that prophet guy Warren Jeffs who was captured uh, recently in Las Vegas. Yeah. Um, he excommunicated a bunch of people from the church, and I think one of them died, and the father didn't go to the son's funeral. That's the extent of wow. the shunning or the the uh, severing of these fellowships. I believe to a certain extent Scientology does it as well. You're not supposed to 
hang out with people who are former Scientologists because they're apostates, et cetera, et cetera. But we can't really relate to that because we hadn't grown up in it. And, and, you know, to be fair, I mean, except for the really, really hardcore JWs, I mean, I think there's a great amount of cognitive dissonance with the whole shunning doctrine for all those reasons you state. I mean, innately, it seems wrong to us to shun someone we love and care about. So it does create a bit of a a mindfuck, as I call it, for these people, you know, that they're supposed to not speak to these people anymore. Well, and the funny thing is, is it almost shows that you don't really believe in your religion because you aren't following the doctrine to the letter, because you have people in there who are picking and choosing what it is they like about the religion and what it is they don't like. I mean, I I know this, this may be saying something bad about your parents, but it it kind of says that, because if they truly believed in this religion, they would be following the shunning practice to the letter. And to their credit, they aren't, but still, it it almost shows a slight disbelief in what they state they believe. Or relative importance they place on their relationships. Yes, I think that's what it is. I mean, you can almost see that spark of your mom truth-seeking an independent mind coming out uh, in this instance. Yes, very much so. Yeah. Um, well, Leighton, do you have any other questions? We're kind of running into the end of our podcast here, our hour. Uh, why, why do you always come f- to me for the questions? I realize I am the one with the intelligence in this podcast, but <laughs> why can't you figure out some questions of your own? I like to embarrass you because you never have any more questions. Well, that's because we've come to the end of the line, and I at least wrote down my questions. How many questions did you write down? How would you verify? I've got 50 questions, Leighton. Oh, really? (laughs) You're making these up on the fly now that I've brought it up? You have no way of verifying how many questions I wrote down. (laughs) You know what, Tall Penguin? I need you to come down here, and then you can verify which of us has more questions. Great. Sounds like a plan. Do you do you have anything else to say? Any final words you'd like to impart uh, to our audience of three? I would just like to say, if anyone is out there and uh, is in a similar situation to I have, uh, to the one I've been in the past, to you know, start to trust your gut, question things. Absolutely, and I thought it was very poignant when in the email that you wrote us that you said that we were laughing and and uh, uh, making fun of these doctrines and and. Uh, on one hand, you were laughing. On the other hand, it really hurt. <laughs> yeah, indeed, it did. <laughs> yeah. And it is painful um, on, on the one hand. And uh, I feel the same way, thinking, God, I cannot believe I ever, ever believed in this garbage. No matter how young I was, I can't believe I did. Uh, and it is somewhat of hindsight. Painful. Yeah, it is somewhat painful looking back. Now, one thing I would like to say is that anybody out there listening to this, you really sh- should go to Tall Penguin's blog. I've I've gone through there. I know Charlie hasn't because he's a lazy son of a bitch. <laughs> but I've gone through there, and I've read some of her posts, and, and not only are they poignant, but they're very insightful as well. Thank you. Excellent, excellent. So you might see a spike of uh, three people going to your blog after this. <laughs> well, maybe four because we're still arguing over whether we have four. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, fantastic. Thank you for coming on the show. It was a really enjoyable hour. Thanks. Layton, yeah. do you have any? <laughs> Why would I thank her? I thanked her in email. Excellent. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hopefully, um, if you come up with any more topics or if we have any more questions, we can have you on for a return visit sometime. That would be great. Wonderful. <laughs> 
Thank you.